Amen, amen, amen. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. Today we're going to be in the book of Romans again. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to Romans chapter 12. We've been in Romans 12. We're going to be in Romans 12 today. We're going to be in Romans 12 for a little bit because, golly, there's just so much here. There's a lot here about the practical living out of Christianity. And I want to sit in it and I want to think about it because... The hope will be that we can kind of understand the things we should be doing in this time. How do we get there? Well, we read the text, we understand what it says, and we start to apply it. Romans chapter 12. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, please don't worry. We'll have those words on the screen for you as we go along. Now, many people are wondering, what's the thing that's going to fix all the things? If you live, like me, uh, in this modern kind of age of miracles, we're really used to answers coming to our problems very quickly. It's startling when you have something that happens that you can't fix with a single pill, that you can't fix with a single app or a single kind of patch. It's not something we experience very much. We're not used to just shrugging our shoulders and thinking, well, some problems can't be fixed, or some problems can't be fixed even quickly. And I think many people, when they come to scripture or, or bigger than that, when they come to just any questions about wisdom, we often get stymied because there's not just a quick answer. There's not just a single pill. My wife recently um, has been having these migraines. And part of what's so frustrating about them is not merely the pain, but just the idea that you can't just fix that quickly. I think if there is one quick fix or one central problem that we can work on, that we can start kind of seeing some level of growth in and then watching as it covers a whole multitude of other problems, it would be the one that comes up today in Romans 12.3. So again, we're not quick fix people and there's not going to be a quick fix, but if there was one thing that was pretty much the central problem for most people most of the time, it would be the thing that we're going to think about today. It would be the thing that I think is causing some of our difficulties right now. I mean, we've all been put on an island, sort of. And once upon a time, and, and probably even still today, there's this idea that the ancients, the wise ones, might seclude themselves in a desert or on a mountain. And when they would come back... They would have this idea, they would have this revelation, they would have this moment of inspiration that would be this wisdom pearl that you could take and, oh, yes. But we didn't get put on a desert or on a mountain, we got put on an island. And in modern times, when we get thinking about people put on islands, we think about people who start talking to volleyballs. We're not going to come out of this probably a lot smarter, a lot healthier, if we're not very intentional. We're probably going to come out of this a little crazier. And that's why we've been thinking about thinking. And, and it wasn't really me. I didn't intend for this. Honestly, I picked Romans chapter 12 because there's so much practical advice about being a Christian or living the Christian life. And I wanted us to get practical. But startlingly, the first several verses of this chapter have focused on things that we might not consider to be practical. Instead of just telling us, here's how you organize your calendar the text is instead said, here's how you organize your mind. And I hope that you're finding, as I am, that really that's the more crucial question. 
How are we organizing our minds? How are we thinking? If you'll remember the last two verses that we've read, we're going kind of slow for Hope Church through Romans 12. But the first two verses say, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I'm appealing to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So because you consider the mercies of God, Because you're thinking about and remembering that big word, therefore, which references all of the first 11 chapters of the gospel, I'm sorry, of the book of Romans, which think through the themes that run throughout the entirety of Scripture, having both the Old Testament and the revelation of Jesus Christ. Putting both of those things together and showing us the fullness of God's work in those first 11 chapters, therefore, considering, considering, thinking about, remembering, organizing things in light of, we present ourselves as living sacrifices. It's thought words. It's thinking words. It's considering words. And then what we said last week was even more to the point when it says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewal of your minds. That our minds must change, that our thought processes must change, must change. That's what we finished last week by talking about these three S words, the idea that we're going to soak. Part of how we change the way that we think is not merely by thinking a new thought. It's by thinking that new thought and letting it just really soak in. To soak in the idea that God is God and I am not. To soak in the idea that he loved me so much that he gave his own son to die for me. That's not an idea that you can take in just on a chance reading. That's something that you have to slowly process. Let the implications of that thought just bloom in your mind. You soak. Also, you socialize. And you may say that's difficult. It's really not. Hop on a phone, hop on a Zoom and contact somebody and think with them about this stuff. God's given you other people on purpose. You are not going to be able to process the sum total of the mysteries of God on your own. You need other people to bounce these ideas off of. You need the other perspectives that come from other people. Socialize around these ideas. Can you understand maybe a little bit more of why the church is important? And then see, look around you'll start to notice how these things are reflected all around you, come together in and through the things that God has called you to do. So we're organizing our minds, we're thinking, we're going through and we're trying to figure out what's going on. Maybe you're walking around and hiking a little bit and seeing what's beautiful. If you're like me, it hasn't gone great. The last two big hikes where I've gotten our family organized and excited and all our little kids put on their hiking clothes and we've gone. The first one I picked was totally snowed in. We didn't realize until we got there. The second one was yesterday, we went to Antelope Island, and it says on the website, like, we will tell you right now is biting gnat season, so, you know, wear some fine mesh. And I was like, gnats are so small, we'll be fine. And I went out there, and of course, um, the biting gnats are biting, and uh, please don't go to Antelope Island right now, (laughs) unless you have uh, fine mesh protection head to toe. But if you've had more successful outings, then you've seen our beautiful world and you've kind of processed some of these things. And I'm hoping that the the beauty is helping you to think and to organize. But look at verse three. And this is what I think pulls together the, the main sort of one of the primary knots. One of the things that's gumming up the pipes 
in what it is to be a human. It says in verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say, to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think with sober judgment. Often when you're reading the Bible, especially the New Testament, a lot of it's written by this guy, Paul. And Paul's sentences are generally very lengthy. And so sometimes it's hard to understand exactly what's happening. And the thing you do when you're reading Greek, which is how the New Testament was originally written, is you start with the verb and you work your way out. I'd encourage you to do the same thing in English. As you're reading a verse like this, and there's all these extra clauses at the beginning and in the end and in the middle, and maybe it's sometimes hard to figure out exactly what's being said, start with the verb. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Instead, do think with sober judgment. Again, about who you are, about yourself. Just to pull it all together, if there's one thing that I think is your biggest problem, probably, everybody's different. I know people, this is not their biggest problem. I'm not talking directly to them today. But for most people, most of the time, your biggest problem is this right here. It's because our culture has totally bought into a lot of ideas that work contrary to the assumptions of the Bible. And they're assumptions. They're things that are below the surface. So it's a little bit difficult to think of, okay, what exactly have I believed and what exactly have I drunk in with the water of the culture? But I want to think with you about it briefly. There's a country song that says, if you're going to be dumb, you got to be tough. Think about that for a second. A lot of terrible, terrible country songs. But every now and again, there's some good, plain wisdom in country songs. And this one, I think, has some good, plain wisdom. Listen, if you're going to be dumb, you can do that, but you're going to have to be tough. Because you're going to get knocked down a lot, and you're going to have a lot of bad things happen to you. If you're going to be dumb, you've got to be tough. And I think part of what's behind that uh, I don't know that it deserves just a ton of your thought, but uh, behind that lyric is the idea that you got to be something. What are you going to be? If you're not going to be dumb, you better be tough. If you're not going to be tough, you better be smart. If you're not going to be smart, you better be pretty. If you're not going to be pretty, you better be athletic. If you're not going to be athletic, you better be fertile. If you're not fertile, you better be friendly. You got to be something. What's your success? What's your identity? Who are you? What are you good at? What are you able to do? How are you contributing? What are you? Do you see how quickly that very different question from the idea of who are you gets mixed up? And you say to yourself, well, who, here's who I am. I am tall. That's what I am. Here's the thing I am. I am tall. I am pretty. I am smart. I am bearded. I am whatever. This is my thing. It's my caricature. It's my talent. It's my identity. And you start to define yourself by it. 
And you may say to yourself, no, I don't think of myself that way. Actually, I don't think of myself as very good at anything. I have very low self-esteem. Can I tell you, you're defining yourself the same way. You're just failing at it. You're saying that I must be fill in the blank and I'm just not. You can think of the character, whether you actually know the guy or you just seen him on TV. That's the, the kind of like dumpy guy at the bar who used to be the high school quarterback. And what is he now? Well, he still used to be the high school quarterback. That's still his thing. You have people today who will say, no, 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 I'm not anything. Really? And what they mean by that is, I think of myself as a smart person, and yet I have failed at being smart. You're still defining yourself by this attribute. I think of myself as a successful person, and I just got fired. So right now, I'm kind of nothing. I think of myself as a graceful person, and yet I can't dance anymore. My knees are bad. I'm just kind of nothing. What is it with you? What's that thing you define yourself by, whether because of your success or because of your failure? Often, we're trained to think that way, and that thinking creates our identity. And do you see how Paul is attacking the Holy Spirit right now through Scripture, is taking an axe and attacking those thought processes about who you are? And he's doing it by saying, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think with sober judgment. How are we to think about ourselves? Well, by the grace given. The phrases that are in each of these verses, we're not supposed to disregard when we start with the verb, but we are supposed to figure out after we find the verb. He says, don't think of yourself more, um, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think of yourself with sober judgment by the grace given. What does he mean by that? Paul is very, very clear and he's very helpful on this point. You don't think of yourself according to all these different things that you might use to build your identity, but you do think of yourself by the grace God has given. What's he talking about? What is the grace that God has given in order for us to define ourselves? Paul is very clear about it. It's one of the best verses that nobody talks about in our modern culture. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. In this book of 1 Corinthians and the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing letters to a church that he planted. So we started Hope Church. He started the church in Corinth. And it was just called the church in Corinth because it was the only church in Corinth. But he started that church. He was the leader of that church. He was the guy who led lots of the founding members of that church to know Jesus. And yet, because he's an apostle and because God's got all this stuff on him, he's doing all this different ministry, different places. So he leaves Corinth, he's planted, he hands it off, and then he goes and he starts planting these other churches. But then there's all these problems in Corinth. And one of the problems is because of the embarrassment of riches in the church of Corinth, the different leaders that they had, and because of their own sinfulness, they started breaking up into these different factions and saying, well, I follow Paul, or I follow Peter, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Christ. That last group, you can imagine, would be the worst group, not because it's not best to follow Christ, but because it's one of the worst things you can do when you say, oh, well, I just follow Jesus. And by that you mean, I don't follow anybody else, when really what you're saying is, I do whatever I want all the time, always. 
And as these different groups and these factions heated up in their aggression against each other, Paul and his image, his person, took a beating. They were saying all kinds of awful things about him. And yet, when he writes these letters to them, he gives them his understanding of himself. And it's not based on what they're saying about him. Here's what he says. With me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. Yes, Paul. Don't judge me. You judge me, it's a small thing. I'm not even going to worry about it. I don't even judge myself. Interesting. Countercultural. In our culture, no, no, no. Nobody else can judge me because I judge me. Nobody else gets to say whether I'm good or bad because I'm going to determine if I'm good or bad. But yet, Paul, this biblical wisdom, this biblical this grace of God for understanding who you are, says, I'm not going to judge myself based on what you say about me, but I'm also not going to judge me based on what I say about me. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. I'm not thereby innocent because it's God who judges me. He's saying that who I am is who God says I am. Another point in 1 Corinthians, he's in chapter 15. He's talking about the resurrection, the witnesses to the resurrection. He's talking about the other apostles, these apostles who actually were with Jesus for an extended period of time, rather than Paul who just saw him on the road to Emmaus. These other apostles that people who hated Paul for other political agendas may have tried to say were better than Paul. So Paul, as he's talking about the resurrection and the witnesses to the resurrection, has to reference himself in this same topic that goes throughout the book of Corinthians. It says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. That doesn't mean he just does whatever he wants to do and says, well, I am what I am. No, no, no. By the grace of God, I am what I am. What I am is what God, in his mercy, by his grace, has said about me. And then he says some other stuff there that's helpful in that context. Who we are is who God has made us. Who has God said that you are? Well, understanding these three verses, always talking about the grace of God in view of the mercy of God, therefore, all of the first part of Romans, we can go to the parts of Romans to see who God says we are. Well, it's very clear in Romans that God says we're created, we're sinners, and yet we're loved so greatly that Christ died for us. Then, putting it all together in Romans chapter 8, he says, For all who have been led by the Spirit of God are, are you ready? Here's your identity statement. Sons of God. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. Remember, we're being adopted. We're not God's kids in some like physical sense. We're God's kids as we have been adopted as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Take that in for a moment. I don't know if we're just so jaded or we're so faithless there are very few things that you can tell people where they'll need to sit down. Generally, it's death-related, loss of a loved one-related, but there's very few things anymore where you can tell it to somebody and they just, 
They've got to sit down because they've got to grip something solid because the information that just came into their brain was such a tornado taking everything they thought they knew and flipping it upside down that they've got to grab something physical to just survive this revelation. I'm going to guess, based on the reaction of the people in the room, that you probably did not have to grip something when I told you that you were adopted as God's children, but you should have had. It's crazy that God, God, holy God, King God, holy of holies God, Lord of all hosts God, creator of all things, and just upholds it by the word of his power, God would adopt you. Oh, you? Me? You got to let this stuff sink in. You got to soak in it. Me? I know me, or at least I think I do, and what I know about myself is not flattering. I've socialized with other Christians, meaning that those people have seen me, and they don't see everything about me, but what they've seen of me is not flattering. As you live in open community, you're going to start to realize about other Christians that they are actually pretty sinful people. And yet God has adopted us that by the grace of God, he can, he can declare that that's us. This would be the kind of stuff that should make you have to sit down to think of this stuff with sober judgment, realizing that you've got two options. You can see yourself as God says you are with some really hard stuff about who you are as sinner, but some absolutely Glorious, melt your face like Nazis in that Indiana Jones movie. Glorious things about God that God has said about you. Or you can just make yourself whoever you want to be. Or you can try and build your identity on something that you're going to decide is your best bet and watch as either. You fail at it miserably and you have a total lack of self-worth or you succeed in it marginally and you live a life of fear and arrogance. Those are your options. I think it's clear which one we should choose. And Paul is telling us, begging us, instructing us. He, he's appealing to us. To think of ourselves as we ought with sober judgment. The other way to think about it is to be proud. If you think of yourself as more highly than you ought, you start to put yourself in a different category than just a person. Now, outside of some of our, our friends who are influenced by Eastern religion, it's probably pretty heretical in your own brain to think of yourself as a god. And when they say it, they mean something different, but do they? And yet, when we say it, we often laugh. Well, no, I'm not God. I didn't create the world. I don't have the ability to tell other people if they can live or die or how they should act. And yet, in our culture, we do act like gods. We act like gods because we reserve for ourselves the absolute right to decide for ourselves our satisfactions, our pleasures. This is what makes me happy. And hey, if it makes you happy, Cheryl Crow, can't be that bad. 
makes you happy, go for it. I mean, you know, unless it hurts other people in their pursuit of happiness. But whatever your pursuit is, pursue. Because you get to decide. Hmm. You have sovereignty in your will towards your pleasures. You have sovereignty in your will to, to protect yourself. Buy your guns, store your goods. It's your job. It's part of why you're so anxious when some of that stuff seems less stable because you think of it as your job to keep yourself secure. Boy, and you think all the time about what are your goals because you think you get to decide what your goals are. You think you get to decide what the, the reason for your life is. Really? When Paul is saying that we should not think of ourselves more highly than, uh, than we ought, he is poking with a needle right at this central conviction of our culture that we get to choose all of that stuff for ourselves. No. That's what the scripture calls pride. And you and I are filled with pride. When you're doing these Zoom calls, do you ever notice yourself staring at yourself? Zoom call, gallery view, and then you organize it so that yours is right in the middle. And it looks like you're looking at the camera, but really you're looking at yourself. Boy, I said that well. God, that smile. Look at those. Look at those dimples. This guy is crushing it. And you're just staring at yourself. Really? Here's what pride is. Pride is like a peacock. We talk about being proud as a peacock. Have you ever seen a peacock? Silliest looking thing in the world. It's so ostentatious. And if you've ever been around a peacock, they're jerks. They're awful. My grandparents used to have a peacock. Can I tell you what one of the main rules was for my being at my grandparents' house? Don't go near the peacock. You could see it far away. You could see it sort of strutting around. You could pick up the feathers that it dropped. But God help you if you ever got near the peacock. They're terrible. Do you know what it's like to be around a proud person? You're around somebody who's ostentatious, who is fully developed in their concept of who they are. And they put all kinds of money and time and skills into trying to make who they are the thing that you're presented with when you meet them. And that self-obsession leads to them being, us being, jerks. And you can be proud as a peacock, or you can try to kill this. You can start to do what Paul says and not think of yourself so highly, but think about yourself with sober judgment. How do you actually do that? Well, you start thinking about the things God said about you. Those things that God has said about you, they're going to give you some real food for thought on lowering who you think you are based on you and raising yourself up as who you think you are based on God's promises. Yet, you're going to need some stuff to keep pushing you back towards God's way of doing things and start pulling you away from our culture's way of doing things, our own heart's way of doing things. I think you, you want to really begin with positive reinforcement. Here's what I mean by that. As you begin to live a humble life, there's going to be some really wonderful things that start to happen. You need to recognize and enjoy those wonderful things. 
One of the things that happens when you live a humble life rather than a proud life is your anxiety and your fear plummet. They plummet. My children can laugh during storms. They can play marbles when COVID's going on. Why? I don't know. Mom and dad have that. That's not my job. If I give them something to do, they've got to do it. It's their job to do those things. But to hold the whole problems of the world on their tiny shoulders, that's ridiculous. That's mom and dad's job. They're not worried about insurance. They're not worried about the next meal. They're not worried about whether or not mom and dad are going to have money. Whether they should be worried or not. They don't worry about that. That's mom and dad's worry. How much of your anxiety and your fear on a daily basis come from the assumption that it's your job, not God's, to provide absolute security and satisfaction? The enemy doesn't tell you that when he offers you that opportunity to be your own God, but it's absolutely the case. Therefore, when you act out humbly, enjoy, watch and enjoy as your anxiety and your fear decrease. Allow that positive reinforcement to encourage good behavior. Do you understand that if you will start to become humble, you will have a rock-solid identity? You won't have an ego that's like a balloon. You blow up a balloon, you tie it up, and you've got this thing. But it's overinflated, and it's vulnerable. I remember being at like um, some kind of a chain restaurant. It was like a Chili's, but it wasn't Chili's. And it was somebody's birthday, and we're little kids, and we've got these balloons. And this will tell you how long ago it was. You could smoke in the restaurant. <laughs> tells you a little bit about the region and a lot about the time period. But you could smoke in the restaurant. And this guy walked by with his wife and just with a cigarette went, pop, and popped the balloon with his little lit cigarette. And they just kept walking. They thought it was real funny. My mother was very upset. <laughs> but do you understand that if you allow your ego to inflate like that, how vulnerable it becomes. Oh my gosh, at any moment, at any time, you're having to guard and protect and watch out for your, your precious, vulnerable ego. Do you understand that if instead you become what God says you are? Sticks and stones, baby. People can throw whatever they want at you and you know who you are because it's been given to you. You don't have to earn it or protect it. It's just been handed. When you start to enjoy that, let that positive reinforcement encourage good behavior, encourage healthy thinking. And oh my gosh, will this give you grace for tasks? There's a part of you that might think that if I, if I just think that God's got it, then I won't do as much. I'll decrease my activity because my activity is really just based on how often I think it's up to me to do it. People make the same argument about morals. If you tell people they're saved by grace rather than by works, they're just going to go to seed. They're going to go do whatever they want. They'll never work again. But the exact opposite is true. If you know that who you are has been given to you by God, and you humble yourself to realize your place in His organization, you will pull the pin on the grenade. You're going to start going nuts. <laughs> Because you'll just start doing what he's told you to do. You'll start taking small steps of obedience that become big steps of obedience, that become ludicrous steps of obedience, because you actually trust 
You trust his ways. You trust his resources. You trust his absolute security. And so you go do crazy things like try to plant churches in crazy places. Confront crazy issues in your own heart. He'll give you grace for tasks. We've got to positively reinforce right thinking. And as we do, you're going to just start to see all of this grace redouble and redouble. Positively reinforce it. But you've also got to obey. Here's where I get this. At the end of this verse, in, John, in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, it says, Grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, the way that the ESV interpreted the Greek, it sounds like it's not your job to really do this. That you do it as well as you can do, but some of us have really big, strong muscles, and some of us have tiny, little, puny muscles. And so the job of being a lineman, well, it's got to go to the guy that's got the big, giant body. And the job of being like the guy who gets the water, that's got to be given to the person who's maybe not the giant super person. God's given great faith to some people, and it's their job to go plant churches and do big things. And God's given small faith to other people, and it's their job to just kind of do what they can. Do you think that's what this verse really means? If you go to the other places where these things have been translated into the English, so they're going from the same Greek into English, a lot more of them say it in a way that's maybe more helpful. The NASB says it this way. To think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Here's a better way to understand it. God has given to everyone faith. And that faith is going to increase as you obey. Every time you do something, you're reinforcing a narrative you believe to be true. Here's how I think about it. I have a body. God's given me this body. And this body, according to nutritionists, is allowed a certain measure of calories. Those calories can go up and down based on my activity. But for my size person... For the activity level that I have on a regular basis, I have a certain number of calories if I want to be healthy. That's just the way the world works. And yet, every time I walk by, we went to Sam's and got, uh, you know, stocked up on food stuff a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things we stocked up on, obviously, was peanut M&Ms. But you can't buy king-sized peanut M&Ms at Sam's. You have to buy quart-sized or gallon-sized peanut M&Ms at Sam's. And we had to move it back downstairs because when it was upstairs, every time you walk by, you think, ooh, I know what I deserve. Just a handful. Well, did you know that it's like 10 and you've already had 200 calories? That means that if you go by just a couple of times that day, you don't get to eat a meal. Every time you go by, though, and you get a little handful, you're saying to yourself, I get to do what I want to do. I'm in charge of me. Every time a pretty lady walks by and you choose to look at her rather than not, you're saying to yourself, I get to do whatever I want to do because I'm in charge of me. Every time the, the traffic makes you shift lanes and there's nobody in the traffic area doing work, and you say to yourself, I'm going to now curse the government and the traffic people, in spite of God and his commands for us to obey the authorities that he's given, 
you're saying to yourself, I get to do what I want because I'm in charge of me. Every time you're proud, every time you are flippant with your children, every time you're short with your husband or short with your wife, every time you sin, you're saying, I get to do what I want to do because I'm in charge of me. That thought is taking place. And yet, every time you obey, you say instead the opposite. I do what he wants me to do because I'm a servant. He's in charge. Every time you obey with your words, by either saying or not saying, according to God's will, you're saying, I do what he wants me to do because he's in charge and I'm a servant. Every time that you, you obey in your giving, what are you saying? I do what he wants me to do because he's in charge and I'm a servant. Do you understand how your obedience or your disobedience plays a big impact on the way that you think? And the way that you think is going to have a huge, gigantic impact on all these other things we've been talking about? So brothers and sisters, as we go through the rest of this chapter and we start thinking about some of the, the things you should do and should not do, understand that it's not so that you can be saved, it's so that the things that he's given you, these thoughts that he's given you that are going to rest down in your soul, will start to really be true. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your grace. I thank you for the words that you've spoken and the ways that you've given us to think and think in a healthy way. I pray that you would bless us the rest of this day. Make us a people who think clearly and have sound judgment about ourselves. And that that sound judgment would lead to grace upon grace and startling obedience. I pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.